In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. And today we're joined by Tamar Hallerman, the AJC's Washington correspondent, after a brief hiatus in which our producer, Bria Felician, went out of town on a much, much deserved vacation. Tamar, how's it going? Good, good. I'm back from vacation too, ready to talk about Georgia politics, pumped, excited. You were gone too. Uh, there was a lot of people in the AJC newsroom gone last week. I guess I had my vacation earlier, so um, we got to hold down the fort. <laughs> and it was a busy weekend to come back because over the weekend, uh, President Trump tweeted out that four freshmen Democrats of color, um, you know them by now, they're the squad, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib, should, quote, go back to where they came from that immediately sparked uh, calls that that was a racist tweet from Democrats, the me- members of the media, even some Republicans. Talk about how the state's two top federal Republicans, how, how Senators Johnny Isaacson and David Perdue responded. Sure. They were kind of in the same boat of most Republicans on Capitol Hill. You know, the everyone was caught off guard by these tweets, including White House staffers. I mean, this is the president taking his phone out and just kind of tweeting his thoughts as, as mm. usual. And, you know, Republicans on the Hill were not given any sort of directive about how to respond to this. Uh, you know, back in the old world order, the White House would, would always kind of send talking points out to their allies about different um, White House policies or, or presidential you know, directives and stuff. But but these guys were kind of left on their own. And, and you know, for a while, they were able to dodge reporters because Monday is when lawmakers get to Washington from their home states. But uh, there was a 530 vote where all of them were just getting bombarded with reporters, every single one of them asking about these tweets. Um, you know, Johnny Isaacson, um, you know, criticized the, the remarks. He said they were totally inappropriate, but he also said it wasn't his responsibility to um, to answer for Donald Trump's tweets. He said he's responsible. You know, Johnny said he's responsible for his own statements and not the president, and declined to defend them. He's really unique there too, because um, he he said this over and over again that hey, I'm you know my name's on the ballot. I'm not running as Donald Trump. I'm running as Johnny Isaacson. But he's also been the rare Georgia Republican and one of the rare Republicans in the Senate overall, who is, by my count, at least four or five different times, you know, taken right to the president and cr- directly criticized his remarks, even though he does say, hey, I'm, I'm Johnny, I'm, I am speaking for me. He's also gone 
beyond that perch and attacked President Trump directly. Exactly. We've written a ton about what we've co- we've kind of branded his uh, his arm's length approach to, to Trump. He mm-hmm. endorsed him ahead of the 2016 presidential convention, but since then has really tried to keep a distance from the president. Um, in general, he doesn't try and, you know, he won't really criticize presidential behavior in, in, unless he kind of criticizes somebody personally, but otherwise we'll speak very well of, of a lot of the president's policies. But but we saw when the president renewed his attacks on John McCain earlier this spring, for example, Isaacson was really out front about mm-hmm. that saying, you know, this is a veteran. I'm the chairman of the Veterans Committee. This is not appropriate for you to say this. Um, and let's contrast that with Senator Perdue, exactly. who has taken a, a wholly different approach. Exactly. And, you know, throughout his, um, you know, as he's kicked off his reelection campaign over the last few months, he's, you know, very closely tied himself to the president, you know, his, his very close ally and put very little daylight between himself and and his golf buddy. Um, and, and in general, even in moments where Trump has said really... Um, you know, divisive things, including, you know, the Charlottesville comments, uh, you know, Purdue has been the one to defend him. This time when I talked to him on Monday, you know, he he really did try and keep his mouth shut, didn't want to say anything. But then when we asked him if the tweets were racist, he said, of course not. That's a ridiculous statement to make. But he really has not weighed in more than that. And we should note here, too, that this top state Republicans have also not really weighed in. Um, we reached out to Governor Brian Kemp, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, Attorney General Chris Carr. Either we got no response back um, <laughs> when we usually do. We usually we usually have a, a steady stream of communication. We either got no response back or a polite decline to comment. And, uh, of course, when we see them in person, we'll try to get them a comment. But um, this is one of those weeks where... Um, they're on the road or we haven't, we have just not been able to get them in person. So we have to go through their, their spokespeople. Well, Tamar, you, you also had a very a front row seat to one of the most bizarre uh, interactions that many people have seen in, in Congress in decades. Yeah, exactly. So on on Tuesday on the House floor, Democrats had teed up a vote on a resolution, de, you know, decrying the president's comments as as quote unquote racist, which is, which is a, already a high stakes thing, right? Totally, this is already a high stakes debate. Totally. And and using the word racist on the House floor is already a breach of House decorum. Um, it's actually written in Thomas Jefferson's manual, kind of wow. <laughs> outlining floor rules from the early 1800s that you are not allowed to call a president racist. And so you saw a lot of Democrats as they were speaking on the floor in favor of the resolution, they were kind of, you know, dancing around that word. You heard John John Lewis Lewis. (laughs) exactly saying, you know, I know racism when I see it more broadly, but not saying the president is racist. Well, then we had Speaker Pelosi go onto the floor and call the president racist outright, or at least the comments racist. You had Doug Collins, a uh, Republican from Gainesville, the top Republican on the House Judiciary Committee, committee, leading the floor debate for the Republicans. And he kind of stopped her and said, you know, do you want to change what you just said? You know, this is a breach of of the rules. And she said, no, 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 I cleared this with the parliamentarian. You know, my speech stands. And so he objected to the remarks and it led to more than two hours of confusion on the House floor, which typically runs like a train schedule. Things move so quickly. So for things to come to a screeching halt for two hours was pretty amazing. You saw this crazy scene on the House floor with more than a dozen Democratic lawmakers huddling with the parliamentarian in the corner. You had Doug Collins across the room with with Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise kind of waiting to figure out what was happening. 
you had a Democrat, um, you know, presiding over the chamber, an ally of mm-hmm. Nancy Pelosi, um, who actually he got the ruling from the parliamentarian that that said what Pelosi said, you know, w- uh, goes against the rules of the House. She uh, that has to be struck from the record, and she's not allowed to speak on the floor for the rest of the day. He actually abandoned his post instead of reading the ruling, which had apparently never happened before. Drop the mic. Yeah, it was such a bizarre standoff that our, our colleague, Jamie Dupree, who's who's been covering the, the Congress and, and federal politics for something like, what, 40 years now? <laughs> he said he's never seen anything like this before. And we haven't had um, anyone call a speaker um, on their comments before since, what, since Newt Gingrich in 1985? Exactly. 35 years ago when Newt Gingrich drew um, Sp- Speaker Tip O'Neill into a fight. This was back in the early days of C-SPAN where Gingrich was kind of an unknown, young, mm-hmm. rabble-rousing Republican, and he really found a way to harness the power of C-SPAN. He'd give these, he'd give these speeches at, you know, in the middle of the night when no one was watching. And, and he was criticizing a lot of Democrats for, I guess, a letter they'd written uh, commending the, the leader of Nicaragua, who was kind of this strong man at the time. And, and Tip O'Neill goes to the floor saying, you know, this is the lowest thing I've ever seen in my life, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, back in the day, or not back in the day, uh, this still holds true now. You're not allowed to lob a personal attack at a colleague, which is why you always hear them saying, my dear friend from the other side of the aisle. My esteemed colleague. Exactly. So a pretty historic moment and um, pretty interesting Doug Collins right in the middle of that fight. Well, beyond that dramatic floor fight, th- those comments f- the, from, from President Trump and the ensuing um, uh, the rally in North Carolina where people were were chanting, send, send her back, send her back and, and such, uh, have caused a lot of pain on the ground uh, especially to to people of color and and to people of re- religious minorities who have also been told the same thing um, over their lifetimes. And what we really see, our colleague Tyler Eastep wrote a story about um, Gwinnett County, one of the most diverse counties east in the <laughs> in, in east of the Mississippi. Um, uh, you know, a re- former Republican stronghold, now solid Democratic territory, also the home of the seventh district congressional race. And he spotlighted a few of the local Gwinnett County officials who have talked about their their travails with the go back type arguments made against them. And one of the more compelling ones came from Nabila Islam. She's running for um, seventh district. Um, she's a Democratic organizer. Her last name is, you know, as as the last name Islam, it, she becomes an instant target to white nationalists and white supremacists and, and racists. Well. She shared text messages and social media messages for people saying exactly that. She should go back, go back to where she came from. Well, she's from Gwinnett County. Um, that, that's where she came from. So you're seeing these arguments sort of play out on the ground level all over all over the nation. Exactly. Um, and it, it, it's not something she's indicated she, she wants to shy away from. You're right, Greg. She grew up in Gwinnett County, but she does talk a lot about being a first-generation American. Her, her uh, parents immigrated from Bangladesh. She grew up in, in Lawrenceville, and she is Muslim. She, you know, she, she will talk about it sometimes on the campaign trail, mention how she's more of a cultural Muslim now, but you know, she, uh, she's running a very progressive campaign where she's even mentioned being inspired by women like Ayanna Presley and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So I'm sure that all of this this happening um, certainly kind of emboldens that a little more. Um, to our colleague Tyler also spotlight spotlighted one of her um, one of her mm-hmm. opponents for the seventh district Democratic 
primary, Brenda Lopez, who immigrated to the U.S. from Mexico when she was five years old. She's an immigration attorney now, and she's she's talked a lot about Trump's immigration policy as she's ramped up her campaign. I reached out to her yesterday and, and asked if she has dealt with any extra online harassment since Trump's comments. She said, no, not really, but, but how it has been an issue for her throughout her political career with with people saying all sorts of things on social media and, and how it's almost kind of become the norm. And before we leave this part of the con- conversation, we, we mentioned Johnny Isaacson <clears throat> earlier. Um, he had some um, sad news over the last week where he had, he suffered a fall in his apartment in Washington, fractured four ribs. Um, his spokesperson was very blunt that he was in pain, but is recovering. Um, so all of our thoughts and our, 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 our prayers are out to him and his family. We hope he has a, uh, a solid recovery. Yeah, absolutely. He's been in the hospital a couple times over the last few years. He, he's been suffering from uh, Parkinson's disease over the last, uh, he announced it in 2015. I believe he was diagnosed mm-hmm. in 2013. Um, it's unclear whether this particular fall had anything to do with that, but in general, he does have mobility issues getting around, but we, we wish him all the best. You know, on Capitol Hill, I talk to him almost every day and, you know, physically he walks around with a cane. He's kind of slow. It's, it's hard for him to get around, but um, mentally he's still super sharp. I've never noticed a blip with him at all. You know, I, I talk to a lot of older lawmakers. There's a lot of old people in the Senate who you talk to them and you realize they aren't fully there. Um, I would never say, you know, Isaacson has never been mm-hmm. in that category. You know, he's a chairman of two committees. He's always traveling, and um, you know, we hope he gets better soon. He's one of the busiest people in Washington and anyone familiar with, with Parkinson's disease knows that, yes, you know, even though they might not be saying it's directly re- result of Parkinson's, uh, the disease, uh, you know, you, you alternate sometimes between locking up and not being able to move at all and shaking and, and your body just doesn't do what, what your, what your, what your brain is telling it to do. So, um, there are falls, there are, um, there are frozen, you know, missteps. There's just a lot of a lot of things associated with Parkinson's. It's just it just stinks. So our, our, we're really thinking about him. We we and we hope he recovers. Uh, and and it was neat seeing the outpour of bipartisan well wishes for for, for Johnny Isaacson from Stacey Abrams and the Democratic Party to his colleague David Perdue to Governor Kemp, just down the line to pretty much every candidate. Teresa Tomlinson, everyone was just saying, we hope he he feels better. We hope he gets better. Yeah, it speaks to kind of the special place he holds in in Georgia politics. There are a lot of Democrats I know who say, you know, I don't agree with him on most things, but I know that he's a decent human deep down. And I feel like when I do need to negotiate with him on things, he's a straight shooter and I can trust him, which a lot of folks, you can't say that about a lot of lawmakers on Capitol Hill these days. So um, we wish him well. Now on to his colleague, Senator Perdue. Um, over the last week, the field challenging him has grown. And this was a somewhat more surprising um, int- entrance to the race. Um, we, we had long been talking about, let's say, the, the three main candidates who were, who were long eyeing, long publicly considering a run. That, that would be Teresa Tomlinson, the, the former mayor of Columbus, who's already in the race. John Ossoff, the, the sixth district candidate back in 17, who raised $30 million. And Sarah Riggs Amico the former lieutenant governor candidate from 2018. Well, a fourth person catapults into the race. That's Ted Terry, the the very liberal mayor of Clarkston, who has kind of made a name for himself, not just in Georgia. It was fascinating to see all the national coverage um, all over the nation for his for liberal policies. Among them, he supports higher minimum wages. He 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 passed a pushed ordinance in, in Clarkston, um, decriminalizing marijuana, more welcoming to immigration, 
um, stricter clean energy standards, you name it. If it's a if it's a liberal policy, um, he's he's either talked about it or pushed it in his town of Clarkson, which is about thirteen thousand people. It's in central DeKalb County and known in Georgia for being one of the most diverse areas in the entire nation. I mean, just uh, a, a place for refugees, a place for uh, new first generation immigrants, um, and also sort of a you know the the old white working class folks who have lived there for whose families have lived there for generations. Still, a lot of those uh, folks there too. So uh, you know, a unique uh, cornucopia of of Atlantans live there, and now their mayor is running for U.S. Cornucopia. Senate. That's a good word, Greg. <laughs> yeah, um, and and talking with Mayor Terry, you know, it sounds like he he's going to kind of continue a lot of those. You know, we we were talking about all these liberal policies he's been able to kind of. Um, you know, enact in the town of Clarkston. He, he's mentioned trying to do versions of them on the state level, um, especially when it comes to climate change, economic justice, climate mm-hmm. justice, minimum wage, um, criminal justice reform, that sort of thing. And and what's going to be interesting is to see how his candidacy is going to impact all these other Democrats in the race. Um, you've seen Teresa Tomlinson talk about how she's kind of the, the most progressive candidate in the race. It'll be interesting to see um, if and when Sarah Riggs Amico jumps in when we we do expect her to jump in, how this will affect her as well. And then you have Republicans on the sideline who are all just kind of sitting there with glee, you know, waiting for for Democrats to to kind of go further to the left because they think that leaves a real opening for for Senator Purdue. Yeah, it'll be fascinating to see how this plays out because it's hard to see Mayor Terry get outflanked on the left. Just like in the Republican race last year, it was hard to see Brian Kemp get outflanked on the right in the uh, in the primary. I mean, there's there's a few little instances here and there where there was some candidates that took more strident positions than him every so often. But for the most part, he ran further to the right than any other candidate. Just like I, we expect Ted Terry to run further left than any candidate, and and how that affects the uh, the vote and how that affects fundraising for him too will be fascinating because he got in after the fundraising deadline, so there's no real gauge for that. What they think, what and he has a legit campaign operation behind him and and and, and advisors and strategists who have worked in Georgia politics for a long time. So this is not just him, Ted Terry, freelancing this on his own. Um, but what him and the strategists feel is that uh, his stance as his status as the millennial mayor, as a 36 year old um, mayor will help drive out younger voters who we've heard this before, but who traditionally ignore primary votes and tune in maybe for November elections, but don't tune in as much for primaries. They hope that his stance on climate change, on minimum wage, on drug policy, you name it, will will help in that in that respect. Yeah, exactly. And you know, he does have a little bit of a national profile. Um he, does. <laughs> he was he was featured on I didn't really he was know featured this. on an episode of, of the new season of Queer Eye. Um, or a couple seasons ago in Queer Eye, he got his his house made over and they shaved his what he called his resistance beard that he grew after uh, Trump was elected. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, one thing to watch, we are recording this on, on Friday. Um, on Monday or early next week sometime, Teresa Tomlinson is expected to unveil a lot of her policy one-pagers, um, kind of the, the cornerstone policies that are really going to set the term or the, the mm-hmm. tone for her candidacy on, on all sorts of uh, big issues like voting rights and the environment and that sort of thing. It will be interesting to see if we can find any kind of obvious um, stamps of, of Mayor Ted's on there, you know, if, if he kind of nudges her a little bit more to the left on certain issues. 
And the biggest contrast between those two candidates so far, to, to me at least, has been on the on the idea of impeachment. Whereas Mayor Tomlinson has been a, a, a strong uh, supporter of impeaching or at least starting impeachment proceedings against uh, President Trump. Um, whereas uh, Ted Terry says, "Hey, let's let the ballot box speak for itself. You know, let's vote him out and not wor- not have to worry about impeachment at all." So that that's another one of those policy differences, not necessarily on you know things that uh criminal justice or, or climate change, um, you know, po- like substantive policy uh, that will affect our daily lives, but been a, a, a big, huge political debate nonetheless. Um, we should also note that Sarah Riggs Amico, who is still expected to get in the race, um, I've heard from advisors and people around her that it's anywhere between 80% to 100% she's in. Well, she filed paperwork um, exploratory paperwork, basically to let her start f- raising money. Um, so she filed that a few days ago. Um, so another step towards running. Um, we still expect her to run. Who knows? Anything can happen, but we still expect her to run, which would give us three candidates in this race and a fourth um, potential candidate emerged the other day when the son of Joe Lieberman, the former senator and VP candidate from Connecticut, um, he was a Democrat turned independent who's still caucus with the Democrats. Well, his son, Matt Lieberman, who's an Atlanta educator and and, and businessman, uh, let, let word sneak to us that he was also interested in running. So he could be, you talk about wild card. I mean, he's, he's virtually unknown and his fundraising ability is not really known either. But if he gets in the race, there's just another interesting personality. Exactly. I was looking back at the list the two of us have been maintaining over the last six months about possible Senate candidates. And it's funny because a lot of the names who we thought would be getting in or who would be kind of more prominently kind of, or more publicly kind of eyeing a run, a lot of them have fallen away. And then in the meantime, all these new um, candidates who we'd never heard of or never thought of really for this position are, are coming forward. And it, you know, it, it is a really fun part of covering politics. You see these people come out of the woodwork and all of a sudden, you know, you think, uh, you know, all of a sudden they become real front runners. You know, something you tweeted the other day, Greg, which was just a, a funny reminder. Um, you know, it was a, a year ago today that that President Trump endorsed Brian Kemp for governor. How that really, you know, Cagle was already really damaged because of the secret tape of of him talking, um, you know, to one of his opponents. But but this kind of really was the nail in the coffin for him. Yeah, I mean, you talk about Cagle was probably down four or five points um, in 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 a lot of their internal polls at that moment. Um, But you know, was starting to find his footing again. They thought he got Governor Deal's endorsement. He was starting to you know ramp up his campaign activities and spend a lot more money and really sharpen his attacks on Brian Kemp. And then lo and behold, in a tweet that surprised even Brian Kemp, it's safe to say, and and definitely his staffers. Uh, I think Brian Kemp had an inkling it could happen, but certainly wasn't it wasn't a given. But um, the the tweet from out of nowhere, I remember I was driving, um, leaving a radio uh, show. I was driving uh, towards a Kemp event to try to catch the tail end of it. I, I think it was you, Tamar. You said President Trump just just tweeted an endorsement for Brian Kemp. And I pulled over to the side of the road and, and ended up going to Starbucks. But I wrote a story as quickly as I could because it caught everyone off guard. And you're right. That shows the volatility of the Senate race, too, because anything could happen. We didn't think that Ted Terry would get in. We weren't even sure that Sarah Riggs Amico would be a legit contender or Teresa Tomlinson. And the main reason why is Stacey Abrams did not run. And once Stacey Abrams and, and also Sally Yates, the former acting U.S. Attorney uh, uh, General, once they announced they would not 
seek this office, the floodgates were, I mean, you know, the vacuum was there, the void was there, the floodgates open, any, uh, there's no front runner of this race. And so there's any number of candidates that could kind of make their mark. And as we've talked about repeatedly on this podcast and in our stories, you know, we're, we're still, you know, more than a year out from election day. But for a lot of these Democrats who are not statewide names like Stacey Abrams or Sally Yates, you know, they needed to get into this race yesterday to really start building name recognition and getting their operation up and running. It's not to say it's impossible to to become a front runner and, you know, enter the race now or in a few weeks or months, but um, you really got to work your butt off. And, <laughs> you know, time is running out, frankly, for for a lot of folks who are eyeing this race. Yeah, um, they do have a benefit, though, in that um, no one has really emerged as the solid front runner yet. Um, Teresa Tomlinson had uh, a fundraising for, for a quarter of about $520,000, which is nothing to sneeze at. Um, it's a solid number. And, and in past years, look, look at 2016, that would have been celebrated. Jim Barksdale pumped millions of dollars into his own uh, account but didn't raise, hardly raise the blip. So that number is nothing to sneeze at, but at the same time, it does show you that she is not the front runner. Most, uh, her donors were not, uh, uh, you know, party figures. She had a lot of, uh, a broad range of support, but, but most of the party figures are staying on the sidelines. So she's definitely a top contender, but there is no front runner in this race. And that's why, that's why there is an opening. People need to get in soon, but someone like John Ossoff, who has a really long list of, of supporters from his 2017 campaign. So he has his fundraising, uh, you know, bones already in, in place. He doesn't necessarily need to get in tomorrow. He can wait a little bit. Sarah Riggs Amigo feels like she can wait a little bit more. And also there are, there are, you know, other candidates that might be like Ted Terry, who we didn't hear about until just a few days before he formally jumped in, that he was really seriously considering this race. So, so some of those candidates, you know, there, there could be um, candidates, prosecutors, local, you know, county officials, state representatives, state senators who were, they're not, not quite on the state radar yet, but you know, by this time next year, they could be the nominee. The Who knows? Time, though, you know, we're expecting this to be the, the costliest race for U.S. Senate in, mm -hmm. in Georgia history. Even Mayor Tomlinson's people believe this is going to be a $22 million million dollar race. Million and we already know that David Perdue is a fundraising juggernaut. We've talked about this before. He has the president in his quarter, the secretary of agriculture, his first cousin. You know, he has Nick Ayers. He has Brian Kemp. It's going to be easy for him to raise money. And he's been steadily putting in almost $2 million each quarter into his campaign account, which is pretty darn impressive. Um, you know, Democrats are really <laughs> going to need to ramp up quickly in order to compete with that. The, the potential candidates that I've talked to who have ruled it out, um, who have said like, no way they're saying it's really interesting. They're saying they're not worried. They can win the primary. It's, it's all about November. And you're right. I mean, Purdue is going to be a very formidable candidate. Um, no one knows what the Trump effect will be like in 2020. We know that he won Georgia by five percentage points in 2016 without seriously contesting the race. And neither did Hillary Clinton. I should add, she didn't really, um, a fight in Georgia um, too much. They spent some money here. They had some resources here, but it was not one of their top targets. And so he still won Georgia by five percentage points, but he lost Metro Atlanta. So no one knows what the Trump effect will be on the top of the ballot. Um, early indications are a lot of the sort of well, better known Democrats either are passing because uh, they don't want the office. They're passing because November is a, they see November as a crapshoot. Um, 
or they're or they're passing because they see P- Purdue as a legitimately strong front runner, and they don't want to they don't want to gear up for that. So it, yeah, it's going to be tough. But if you have a if there is a credible Democratic uh, contender with with who already has name recognition, there's still time to get in, and that's what I keep on hearing from party leaders is that is that yes, for lesser known candidates, uh, they need to get in early. But if someone if a bigger name, um, I mean. Needless to say, Stacey Abrams, if she changes her mind, she could get it in January, right, and still raise a, t- a ton of money, um, or February. Um, so, so there are certain candidates who can who can wait it out, and there's others that just can't. Yeah, exactly. And and so much of this race is going to be defined not by these Senate candidates, but by the top of the ticket. And because there is so much uncertainty in the Democratic presidential field, I think a lot of the better known candidates are maybe waiting a little bit to see if if you know, the field starts narrowing a little bit so you get a better idea if it's going to be kind of a more centrist like Joe Biden, or if there's, you know, if you get an African-American candidate who can really excite folks in the South, you know, a lot of black women who who really are the backbone of the Democratic primary field, that, that'll change how these Senate candidates campaign in, in Georgia as well. So still a lot to shake out between now and then. And before we wrap up, you had an interesting story about yet another policy issue that could play that could loom large in next year's race, and that's that's the fifteen dollar minimum wage. Uh, how did how did Georgia's delegation? vote on that one. Sure. So the House uh, this last week finally passed this this long this long sought $15 minimum wage bill from from Democrats. And this is something that Democratic leaders have been working on back and forth between the progressive wing of their caucus and more moderate members for for the last 6 months. I mean, it's it's July. This is something that I know the party really wanted to pass in in January, February. Um so it ended up being a pretty party line vote. All five Georgia Democrats ended up voting for it. All nine Georgia Republicans voted against it. Um, one candidate, candidate, one lawmaker I was watching very closely was, was Lucy McBath. She's affiliated with a group of more moderate Democrats called the the New Democrat Coalition. And, and this group had advocated for uh, changes to the initial bill. They were really nervous about the impact on small businesses. Um, rural areas were the cost of... of um, the cost of living is a little bit lower. So they had pushed for some changes to this, basically um, allowing, you know, there's there's a study that the government would conduct. Um, so so this bill would end up gradually increasing the minimum wage over six years. And, and mm. what these moderates were able to negotiate into the bill was a study at about the halfway mark that, that found that if this bill was hurting the, uh, you know, if this law hurt the economy at all uh, in the middle, they could stop phasing it in. And, you know, the theory being that could help businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so Lucy McBath ended up voting for this bill, um, which I'm sure a lot of her Republican opponents will be talking about on the campaign trail. You had a lot of Republican lawmakers who were saying this was a terrible idea. It would really, you know, it doesn't make sense where it is cheaper to live, where, where you don't necessarily need to make $15 an hour to have a living wage. And, and they think it'll really mm-hmm. hurt a lot of the economic gains that we've seen under President Trump. And Georgia is one of only two states with a minimum wage that's lower than the federal floor of $7.25 an hour. And the last time the AJC polled on this, which was way back in August 2016, so we might need to poll on it again, but 55% of registered Georgia voters supported raising the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. And it was a, an issue in the 2014 Senate race and will no doubt be an issue in the 2020 Senate race. We've got both Mayor Tomlinson and Mayor Ted uh, Terry on the record um, saying that they support the $15 wa- minimum wage, right? 
Yeah, exactly. So it'll be interesting. You know, this is an issue that seems to, you know, voters in different regions of the state seem to think of it differently. And when we pulled this in 2016, which again was before Trump got elected, mm-hmm. before the kind of suburban wave that really changed the politics you know, in Georgia, mm-hmm. we found that, you know, in Metro Atlanta, voters overwhelmingly supported it. Um, we didn't pull or we, we didn't break out anything for suburban Atlanta, but exurban Atlanta overwhelmingly opposed, opposed it. it. So that'll make it really interesting for people like Lucy McBath or all of these Democrats running in the 7th District in Gwinnett and Forsyth who will have to make a call about this. Well, tomorrow, welcome back from vacation. We missed you. And to all our listeners, we're glad we're back from our brief one-week hiatus. Uh, we will have plenty more to come the rest of for next week and the rest of the re- year. Stay tuned and thank you for listening to Politically Georgia. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.